Millennium Cool, a movie podcast. I'm your host, Austin Glidden, and as always, you can find us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by searching Medium Cool Pod. That's Facebook. Facebook. Facebook.com backslash Medium Cool Pod. You can search Medium Cool Pod on Instagram and we'll pop up and at Medium Cool Pod on Twitter. You can also email us at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. Please like, subscribe, follow wherever you're listening. Please, uh, you know, keep up with all things Medium Cool. Just go ahead and push that little button. And always, if you feel so inclined, please leave us a rating, review, anything you can do. We really appreciate you. So, all of that said, everyone, the 20. 22 cram has begun uh, i am sorry that we missed a week of horror month because i was out of town uh, as i had uh, thought might be the case last week i was in portland oregon for a, a conference for work and i just didn't have time leading up to that to uh, get another episode in uh, so pardon me for uh, for missing a week but uh, you know, we are out of horror month at this point by a day, and uh, so I figured I'm just going to move forward with this whole 2022 cram and just get started now, and uh, I did just that. Um, I watched several movies. Uh, before I get to uh, um, Andrew Dominic's Blonde, which is the movie I'm going to be talking about in long form because I have so much to say about this movie and I am very excited to talk about it and I have a feeling that I will be on the opposite end of things uh, from maybe many of you listening uh, but we shall see uh, but I, I watched um, a lot of stuff I watched Blonde in Portland so I'll talk about that um, shortly but uh, when I was flying to Portland Oregon I actually had a chance to see uh, uh, Marcel the shell with shoes on and what a little angel of a movie. <laughs> I mean, there is something about this movie that is so sweet and so just endearing and lovable. I love this movie. I don't imagine it being on my top 10 in the end, though I it may be. Like, I have no idea. I don't think it's rated high enough. I think I'm going to find enough movies to uh, to knock it out but it will be an honorable mention I think it's it's not that it's like this great film but what's so interesting is you know we're what we're doing with Marcel uh, the show with shoes on is there it's literally a shell with feet and what looks like a little googly eye and a mouth and it's stop motion everything is is uh, live action but this is like a little like stop motion stuff it might be animated to look that way but I'm pretty sure it's stop motion and man, it, there is just something about the Marcel, who is a child shell. He lives with his grandmother. And the way that Marcel experiences life is so wonderful. And it's like everything in the movie we've seen in other movies. It's not like it's some unique thing really at all. But man, I just it just kind of reignited whatever it's dealing with. It reignited that as like a unique experience in some strange way. Um, so I, I can't stress enough. Like Marcel, the show with shoes on is a really good time. Uh, I, I had a great time. I, I saw it on the plane. So I, as far as I know, it's not anywhere according to Letterboxd at least. Um, but you might give it a Google and see if it's anywhere to be watched. But I was also excited to see the pretty lengthy uh, Gaspar Noy film, Vortex. It is uh, a film about the last days of an elderly couple stricken with dementia. 
Um, and uh, the the man in it's a traditional couple. The man is Dario Argento, the guy who actually directed the original Suspiria. And uh, but he acts in this, and then you know he has a a wife who has dementia, and the entire thing is essentially shot in split screen. There are two separate screens side by side. One is his perspective of everything, and one is her perspective of everything. And sometimes those perspectives change to other people, but there are always two perspectives happening. And even whenever they're in the same room, you're getting two different perspectives of that conversation and that visual. Uh, look, sometimes the cameras are uh, put together, the, or rather the frames, I guess, are put together in a way that it almost, with the exception of the line in the middle, it looks like it is all one shot almost. Um, man, this is a movie that is like two and a half hours long almost. It's just, uh, it, quite frankly, it was slow as fuck because it's a lot of long takes, which I love. But man, there are moments in this movie that are really powerful. And those moments make up for all of the moments where like Dario Argento is just on the phone with someone and saying, hey, I'm writing a book about movies and about how movies are like dreams. And then the other shot is the wife with dementia, like leaving the house and being lost. But it's like it, it's like meaningful, but it, it you just have to literally sit and you just watch it in real time. Listen, I love slow movies. I thought this movie was awesome. Um not as awesome as Marcel, the show with shoes on, even though this is far more important. <laughs> Vortex is. Um, but I just really loved Marcel. I gave that like four stars. Um, but Vortex uh, was like a three and a half star movie to me. I think it's really good. Um, really well done. Really interesting. You know, we had movies like The Father and, and um, um, oh, what Dick Johnson is Dead, which is a, which is a documentary. Um, and there was a movie like Amore, the Michael uh, Haneke movie. And, and those three movies are kind of unique among themselves. Again, one's even a documentary. They deal with dementia. They do it in an interesting way. Vortex, I think, fits right in there with them, though. I mean, it is a unique take, uh, at least visually and the way that the story progresses. It is um, a relatively unique take, but it's mostly unique in the style, not so much in the storytelling, uh, but still really good. If you're willing to put in 142 minutes uh, to basically watch like a, a really slow movie by the dude that did Irreversible and Enter the Void, <laughs> then by all means, go check out Vortex. I'm like, I want you to. It's it's pretty cool. Uh, but yeah, I got to watch Vortex. Super hyped about that. I got to see uh, Brian and Charles finally, which is, I believe, the it's British. It might even be Wales specifically. I'm not sure. It's on Peacock Premium. You can check it out. Um, Brian and Charles, I was able to watch on the flight. I just used my laptop. But it's 90 minutes, nothing crazy. Um, it's about Brian, who is basically lives alone in the Welsh Valley. Uh, and he invents this contraption robot thing that ends up actually like being this artificial intelligence robot, um, like pretty sophisticated, even though its body is like a, a, um, a washing machine and its head is just like a dummy head. And it has this like wonky glowing eye and it has like computer voice the whole time. But man, this is funny. It, it reminds me of, though it's not the same, but it reminds me of something like the humor and something like you'd watch with what we do in the shadows. This is kind of a mockumentary of sorts, kind of. Um, Brian, the real person, Charles being the robot. Brian is uh, always looking at the camera and talking to it like it's a documentary. 
Um, but there are scenes that make absolutely no sense for this to be a document. Like it, it's very inconsistent. Um, it's, it's humor is usually really good. Um, 90 minutes is as long as this should ever be. Uh, the story itself is not particularly interesting. It's just a really fucking entertaining movie to watch. Uh, this is another three and a half, uh, out of five kind of movie for me. I had a great time with it. Definitely encourage you to check it out. Um, again, 90 minutes. I know I talked down on it a little bit, but uh, honestly, I had a great time. That whole 90 minutes was fun. Don't th- overthink it. Um, you'll ruin it. <laughs> like, you know, because even as I'm watching, I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. Like, why? If this is a documentary crew, why is this being filmed? Like, there are just moments, or why is it being filmed this way? You know what I mean? It's like there are times where the camera's noticed and there are times where the camera's in the shit and everyone ignores it. And it just kind of doesn't make sense. Um, But man, it is an entertaining, fun time. So if you want to watch a little oddball British dark, or not dark comedy, but a British comedy, um, this is just one of those dry, silly comedies. And it was honestly a lot of fun. Uh, I liked Brian and Charles. And then I I was able to... uh, get a screener for Decision to Leave, which is the new Park Chan-wook movie. Of course, Park Chan-wook is uh, the dude who brought us movies like Old Boy, Lady Vengeance. He also uh, later would do stuff like Thirst. He did Stoker. Um, he, he's done a bunch of stuff. Uh, dude, uh, he did The Handmaiden from a few years ago. I think it came out like 2016 or something. Uh, but he's done a bunch of movies, and uh, I was always a huge fan of him. But then the more I go back and watch some of his movies like Old Boy, I still like them a lot, but I don't like them as much as I like. Old Boy would have been a five-star movie hands down when I first saw it. But now it's kind of like, you know, let me actually see what I gave it a rating of. Um, I think I gave it like a four or something. Yeah, I, a four out of five. So it's like all of his movies kind of dropped a star for me. Not all of them, but some of the one that were my more favorites uh, of the time. Man, I, I still love Old Boy. Um, but I haven't seen The Handmaiden yet. I need to go back and watch that. I'm just reminding myself of that. But Decision to Leave was really interesting. It is, can't be anything but a Park Chan-wook movie. <laughs> like, it is definitely stylized as such. Um, and it's uh, about a detective who investigates a suspicious death of a man on a mountaintop. And uh, then soon, you know, he begins to suspect that this woman, um, the deceased wife of of the man, uh, is, uh, you know, maybe had something to do with it, but also he's becoming unsettlingly attracted to her. Um, so it becomes this weird thing of, like, romance, but it's also, like, kind of a thriller, and it's also um, this, like, detective uh, procedural, you know, um, it, man, what a fucking weird movie. And then it's also stylized to the hills, like in, in the way that Park Chan-wook would, but never in a way that takes me out of the reality of what's happening. Um, it's it's really good. Uh, I had a really good time. It's a movie I need to rewatch. I didn't watch it in the best setting, so it's one I would like to rewatch, but currently it's way up on my top 10 right now, uh, way up. So not number one up, but way up. Uh, really good movie. If you get a chance to see Park Chan-wook's decision to leave, I strongly, strongly encourage you to do so. But all of that said, I cannot wait to tell you about Andrew Dominic's Blonde, the much hated, but the movie that I love. (laughs) Let me tell you why here in a moment. 
All right, Blonde 2022, written and directed by Andrew Dominic, based on the book of the same name by Joyce Carol Oates. The cast is Ana de Armas, Adrian Brody, Bobby Carnavali, I think that's how you say his name, uh, Xavier Samuel, and Julianne Nicholson. It was released September 20, or, uh, 28th, 2022. It is streaming on Netflix, and I also feel inclined to say it's an NC-17 movie, uh, so it is not R. Um, and quite frankly, uh, I don't really think there's anything, I don't know, maybe just cause there's like a lot of shit in it, but it just doesn't seem like an NC, like usually when I watch an NC 17 movie, I can very clearly see why, um, whether it's violence, whether it's nudity or sex, whatever. And this one is like, there is stuff that could be, but it just never goes quite as far as I was made to believe whenever I saw the rating and people heard people talking about it. Uh, but instead of giving you a synopsis, I'll, I'll tell you about the movie shortly. But first, I want to read some responses to the film. First, Adam Kempinar, the co-host of Film Spotting, the podcast, which is really great. You should go listen to it. I love those guys. He says, when you don't know whether to give a movie a five stars or one star, well, you split the difference. It's undeniably reductive and possibly exploitative. And yet, I can't shake Dearmas' channeling of Marilyn, which almost certainly isn't accurate, per se, uh, but spookily captures an essence that left me with a pervasive feeling of deja vu. We all only know Marilyn through visual snapshots and scenes, and Dominic depicts and disassembles these, icon uh, these iconic moments in a way that is impossible to look away from, no matter how ugly. His other co-host, Josh Larson, from Film Spotting says, and Larson on film, says, In one of the many graphic and unpleasant scenes in Blonde, director Andrew Dominic's adaptation of Joyce Carol Oates' novel, Anna de Armas's Marilyn Monroe vomits into an airplane toilet, the camera looking up at her from inside the bowl so that she spews onto the lens. In a sense, the movie itself pukes all over Monroe's career. Um... I went to Letterboxd and looked at a few users. One of the users, 24 Frames of Nick, says, thought this was going to be about Frank Ocean, but it was an exploitative shit fest instead. Uh, Olgus, another Letterboxd uh, user, says, this is Marilyn's personal hell, where she dies and people keep making movies, documentaries, and books about the worst moments of her life over and over again for decades, and we just live in it. Eduardo Rinna, another Letterboxd user, says, uh, where's the compassion? Why do we still make a spectacle out of her suffering? Adam Naiman, critic for The Ringer, says Andrew Dominic's bludgeoning Marilyn Monroe biopic ugh, has all the signs of a passion project, but none of the rewards. Tanya Gold from the New Statesman publication says, Watching Blonde, it feels like Oates and Dominic hate Marilyn Monroe. In the film's telling, she is doomed from the beginning, made of pain. Uh, the final one I'll read is Christy Lemire's uh, RogerEber.com article where she wrote about Blonde. Blonde abuses and exploits Marilyn Monroe all over again, the way so many men did over the cultural icon's tragic, too short life. Maybe that's the point, but it creates a maddening paradox, condemning the cruelty the superstar endured until her death at 36 while also reveling in it. <sighs> okay, so I've already let the cat out of the bag. Why do I love this movie so much if the majority of reviews, and I mean majority of reviews uh, and casual feedback amount to what I've just read to you now? 
Um, is the film reductive? Yes. I, I would argue strategically so, but yes, undeniably. Uh, is the film exploitative? Um, maybe. I'm not fully convinced in the way that the reviews I just read you mean, um, but depending on the lens in which you're watching it, I think that argument could definitely be made, especially if you see uh, the film as just a biopic. Um, but I don't really see it as a biopic. And even the source materials based on is a fictional retelling of the life of Norma Jean, a.k.a. Marilyn Monroe. Uh, it is not by any means a proper biography. It is a novel. Everything everyone seems to complain about leads me to believe they're missing something really important, all of which I will explain in this episode. I'm not trying to say that I'm, quote, right. Um, you know, we're all allowed to have our own interpretations of the film. And if you don't like it, don't like it. That's fine. I really don't care. But I think there is something here that is not only great, despite its deflating narrative, uh, but I dare say important. Now, Blonde is a reimagined fictional portrait of Hollywood legend Marilyn Monroe that blurs the lines of fact and fiction to explore the widening split between her public and private selves. We view Marilyn uh, from her volatile childhood as Norma Jean through her rise to stardom and romantic entanglements, but the film is largely focused on the darkness of her life, showing us glimpses of light only to snuff it out with something horrible and depressing. This is a film that is interested in depicting, in its full and unabashed detail, the dark side of Norma Jean and Marilyn Monroe. Again, the same person, one the real person, one, the movie star. It reminded me of a Dominic film written by Lars von Trier, maybe, or something, you know. There is a dancer-in-the-dark level of bummer uh, with a character that we want to love, that character being Marilyn, uh, but they just get trampled over and over. But what does Blonde do that inspires my adoration and praise? Well, uh, it was brave enough to take a beloved character like Marilyn Monroe, someone Dominic had to you know, know would be defended by critics and, and uh, casual viewers alike, and he created a movie that is also not about Marilyn. In this film, Marilyn feels like a vehicle guiding us through the horrors of sexual abuse, misogyny, heartbreak, oppression, etc. that Hollywood not only perp uh, perpetuated in the 1950s, but that they still perpetuate today. It just kind of looks different. Personally, most of the responses I read earlier, not all, but most, are just as reductive as the film. They reduce it down to an exploitative biopic when I would argue the film is so much more. And using the character like Marilyn Monroe was a bold choice. Some would say uh, for this film, maybe they would call it stupid. Uh, but for me, I see it as a bold choice. I don't believe the film revels in her suffering. I never once felt like the film was endorsing the things that happen. If anything, the film forces us to look at something so gruesome, so horrifying, that we are left with two options. One confront what the film is really saying about life, loneliness, and the film industry, etc., or two, simply call it a disgusting exploitative biopic. Now, let me really start with some things I generally liked about the film, because I'll just start ranting if I don't, but I want to talk about Ana de Armas. 
Holy fuck, what a performance. Anyone saying that the film took away from her performance must be blind. Nothing could take away from that. She deserves every award, and I am predicting now that I won't find a performance that not only made me feel so much for the character, but also one that transported me into a different place in time. And 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 how Norma is depicted here, Norma is Norma. But Marilyn is always striving to be what everyone needs her to be. And no one, no matter how hard Norma tries to keep them separate, the lines between both identities blur. And this was so expertly handled, especially with De Armas here. And, and, and I can't say enough good things about this performance. I was not very familiar with De Armas. Um, I'd seen her in Blade Runner 2049, Knives Out, and No Time to Die, the Bond flick, uh, just to name a few. But I, I never really knew who she was by name. I just knew the face. And I loved when Adam Kempinar said, I can't shake DeArmas' channeling of Marilyn, which is almost, which is most certainly isn't accurate, but spookily captures an essence that left me with a pervasive feeling of deja vu. I think that is so true. Uh, there was a controversy over the fact that DeArmas is a Cuban, like of Cuban descent. Uh, so, you know, why was she playing white Marilyn? And keeping the Cuban accent, which kind of comes in here and there, but first off, that's some pretty petty bullshit, all right? I can hardly even recognize, like, it, 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 the way it's shot, you'd never know uh, that she's Cuban to me. Like, she just looks like fucking Marilyn. Like, what is happening here? But secondly, this is the kind of comment that is fundamentally based in a certain level of racism. Um, and it's actually really fucking stupid. Uh, if the person can pull it off and you're telling a fictional story that may be based in some truths, I'll give it that. Uh, but, uh, you know, it is not trying to be accurate. That is not the point of this film. Um, it is not trying to show you the fun times in Marilyn's life. That is not the point of this film. Uh, did she pull off Marilyn? Yes. Fuck off. Anna de Armas has earned a whole new level of respect for me, and I look forward to seeing more from her in the future. Now, next, the overall production is kind of unbelievable. First off, Nick Cave and Warren Ellis did music for it, and it is great. Cinematographer Chase Irvin's lighting is perfect. It is so good. Uh, I mean, this might be like the best looking and sounding movie of like the whole year. I actually think the production of this deserves so much because it is great but the camera work and the lighting is excellent adam robinson's editing is superb i mean when you watch this you'll notice the editing not in a way that it's like pulling away from the movie but if you love that level of creativity especially in editing they do some really great stuff with it and i think it's just really really well done and the sound design is so awesome uh, like noticeably so. It was something that really stood out to me, not in a bad way, but in, in the best way. Andrew Dominic clearly had a vision. This was obviously a passion project for him. I will just say that straight up, whereas other people sometimes use it as a, you know, it must be a passion project, but doesn't feel like one. No, I think it does 100%, and it comes through every minute of its two-hour and 47-minute running time. The aspect ratios and color profiles are interesting. They change with seemingly no purpose throughout the film. Uh, they were meant to be more of a showcase of Monroe's collective memory, I think, but I found it to be, uh, you know, a more interesting visual approach, I guess, which can simultaneously keep us disoriented, much like Marilyn is 
through a large part of the film, uh, but also keeps things moving along in an unpredictable way. Now, supposedly, Andrew Dominic was trying to remain accurate uh, to the aspect ratios and coloring of the original source images and videos that he was recreating in the film. Uh, so, you know, the scenes with, you know, her dress blowing up will be shot in a way that the original footage was, right? And then another shot of her is set on the set of Some Like It Hot, and it's going to be depicted in that black and white aspect ratio style, blah, 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 etc. That's just kind of how the whole film goes. And yeah, I 100% admit it's pretty trivial, okay? Like he had really no reason to do all of these things other than, again, going back to that kind of showcase of Monroe's collective memory. Uh, but, uh, you know, for example, everything about the premiere sequences, actually, let me go back here because uh, I want to say this. Uh, it honestly felt extremely fluid to me because I feel like I just kind of started to make it sound like a bash. And though it is not really... I might be adding or, or making meaning out of something that was ultimately trivial, like I said, but uh, the attention that is given to this film is really interesting. And and the, for example, I was about to say a minute ago, everything about the premiere sequences in this, the premieres of Marilyn's films, feels suffocating. The amount of attention she receives in the film by men is suffocating sometimes, especially in those scenes uh, that are like movie premieres. There is a scene where Marilyn is driving in a car with Arthur Miller, passing by just a sea of fans, the vast majority of them being men. I barely saw women in there. I was actually looking, and, and all of the men look angry, like ravenous, trying to get to her. And I just thought that was such an interesting thing that really hits home the idea that men really treated her like shit. Um, and... They are also enveloped in their obsession and exploitation of this person, the person being Marilyn, that they become raving lunatics, basically. Anyways, the production is top notch. I mean, it made me feel a lot of things. And I also, just as a side note, I think it's funny that Andrew Dominic didn't even really like Marilyn Monroe as an actor, uh, you know, before reading Oates' novel and then revisiting Monroe's performances. At that point, you know, he had a very, very... Uh, deep admiration for Monroe and thought she was great. Uh, but he, before that, he was just like, uh, she's just kind of a, a pretty face. Like, it's kind of dumb. And then, you know, he ended up really ending, enjoying her performances and stuff and a, a lot of those films like The Misfits and Some Like It Hot and so on. Uh, now, I, I'm going to fight some criticism here a little bit because I, again, I love this movie. I think it's great. I would argue that it's probably even important. Uh, now, that I've discussed some of those things that I like, though, I want to address some of these things that are getting under my skin regarding these criticisms that I read earlier and just you can literally Google it and find a million things. The fact that so that so many more people gave this film a half star on Letterboxd. Uh, let me look here. More people gave it a half star then gave it, what is this, uh, half one, here we go, then gave it two and a half stars, okay, uh, I would venture a guess that the half stars and the one stars um, are actually more combined than two and a half all the way to five, um, I could do the math right now, I'm kind of doing it in my head right now, um, 
it is, I think, right around the same. But I mean, I'm talking a lot of people have very like visceral reactions to this. I know that on Letterboxd, at least Joe even gave it a two. Um, and I'll, I'll chastise him for that later. It doesn't matter. Uh, I'll chastise him later whenever this is on my top 10. Watch it be. Uh, but anyways, uh, what I really want to talk about is I hate that people associate this film with an inerrant obligation to entertain. The film does not exist to entertain. Film in general doesn't exist to entertain. It does often entertain, yes, but, the f- but film can be so much more. The idea that film must entertain is directly tied to capitalism because capitalism in the film industry says it must entertain the broadest audience in order to reap the most money, right? So what Dominic did here is not really in that ballpark, nor does it even feel like he's interested in it. So the criticisms about this film being fundamentally flawed because it doesn't sway toward entertainment is the most stupid Stupid, <laughs> stupid, plebeian argument I've ever heard. Um, please stop this. You look stupid. It's also exactly what this film fights against. Uh, Marilyn was treated like meat in the film, and that's exactly what the film industry does to working women. And you're not, if you're not young enough, for example, you don't fit what we're looking for. You know, can you wear the skimpy outfit? People will love it, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, it's, it's not what does the film need anymore. It's what do people want? And though I hope people continue to progress in in more just ways, if you, if you will, um, actors, women especially, and women of color more so are scrutinized for not being a certain way and therefore not given work, and it's fucked. And it's, you know, I... I I would venture a guess that it it's gotten better, but better is not good enough in this sense. That said, what makes Blonde great to me is the journey it takes us on. It is it is one of heaviness and gratuity. You know, uh, do you remember the trend of the dress? You know, like do you see black and blue or white and gold? That that dumb thing. You know how how someone sees a movie like Blonde will not change because it's the lens in which we view it. So I cannot even come close to understanding how someone uh, sees this as a biopic or even just an adaptation of a fictional book. I just don't get it. In the same way, um, like the dress, I just can't understand how people see white and gold because it's clearly black and blue, which even though I think the dress ended up being white and gold, but that's not the point. (laughs) That's not the point. Perception is everything, motherfuckers. So what I'm saying is I'm not trying to change your opinion, okay? I'm just offering my perspective, and it's a perspective I hope you'll give an open-minded chance. Uh, There seem to be two camps from what I found, and there are likely more, but the two that I've kind of compartmentalized here. But I I see two camps. The one that believes Blonde is an exploitation of Norma Jean, Marilyn Monroe's trauma, you know. Um, Others see it as a visceral depiction of the horrors not only this fictional version of Monroe may have faced, but also what an innumerable amount of other women have faced for well over a century in the movie business. And it still happens today. If you use a no-name character, the effect is diminished, I believe. It's using a beloved figure and beating them down, especially whenever it's close enough to their life that it kind of strikes a chord. I think that's what causes such a stir, such a 
really polarizing reaction. Whether you like it or hate it, it's because it's Marilyn, for better or for worse. That is my belief. Largely, I think it really comes down to people don't like to watch the things this film depicts, either rape, domestic violence, etc. And I don't either. So please don't take that as like other people don't like, but I love rape. Of course I don't. Okay, and I'm being serious when I say that. I'm not joking. Sometimes those scenes can, however, be very powerful. They can be used. They can use that horrific shit to make important meaning. And other times, like in the Hills Have Eyes remake, just as a random example that comes to mind, it feels cheap. It's like the villain in Rambo 4. I've used this before, I think. He's a one-dimensional character, and we, we see him carelessly order people to their death or throw kids into pits of fire and stuff because he's just a bad guy. He's a big bad. Though I get some weird kind of joy from that ridiculous movie, it's a lazy and cheap way to build a villain. And the same thing goes for many of the scenarios depicted in Blonde. Most of the men are one-dimensional and have one-track minds. But watching Blonde, it all made sense to me. It didn't take rape lightly, the manipulation, the abuse, the traumatic abortions, any of it. I couldn't believe when I saw IndieWire's Samantha Bergeson or Burgesson, whichever, but I'll say Bergeson. I apologize if I misspeak your name here. But IndieWire's Samantha Bergeson wrote that the film makes an anti-abortion statement by showing a CG fetus talking to Marilyn at one point, which does happen, by the way. And it sounds so stupid to just say out loud, holy fuck. But this scene is meant to depict her personal inner struggle. Clearly, the fetus is not actually talking to her. Anyone who thinks this is not, anyone who thinks this isn't an inner struggle and is literally a thing happening is ridiculous, okay? Oh my God. It's just, it's like reading the Bible and taking every single thing literally. It's just so stupid. I apologize if I offend you, but at the same time, like, sorry, not sorry. Earlier in the film, uh, she said that she loves babies. Marilyn, I mean, you know, Norma Jean. She says she loves babies and Based on the cultural norms of the 1950s, of course she would feel extremely guilty for such things. Why are we talking about this? It makes all the sense in the world to me. By no means do I think the film is supporting some kind of anti-abortion messaging. It's nonsense. The film is depicting Monroe's struggle. And this would have undoubtedly been part of that, especially since Marilyn always wanted a child. Furthermore, it seems the gratuitous nature of the film keeps people at arm's length or pushes them away. And I don't think it should be any other way. I actually think it's important that it goes as far as it does, and I wouldn't have been mad if it went further. This is, for all intents and purposes, a horror movie. Not literally, but it is about the horrors experienced by our protagonist. And I find value in all the aspects of humanity, the good, the bad, etc. I actually think it would, you know, be more exploitative if it did not show the reality of these experiences. It's the difference between the Hunger Games movies and Battle Royale. Like the Hunger Games movies, at least the first two that I saw, coddled audiences, not making them uncomfortable enough. It should. I mean, you're talking about sending kids to their death to murder other kids. And when it's shown in glorious PG-13, you know, it becomes exploitation, essentially. 
At least Battle Royale shows how fucked up things are, albeit in a tongue-in-cheek way, but it does go further and highlights how fucked up the situation is and is tied directly to the politics of Japan. And so in that way, you know, it's being gratuitously violent and darkly, you know, it's basically a dark comedy. Uh, but you have another thing that is essentially the capitalist version of it. Hey, let's make this accessible so a bunch of teens will go see it, even though it's depicting some really fucked up shit, but we'll water them down so people like it. That's fucking exploitation. Okay? <laughs> so anyways, uh, going back to something I said earlier, you know, uh, it's not a biopic, Blonde. It's not a biopic. It's a statement. That's what I believe. Maybe that statement is overshadowed by the shock for some. Uh, If it were a biopic, this would be a whole different story, I think. But it's not. It's fiction from the beginning. It's almost a fantasy of the trials and tribulations Marilyn probably went through. Probably. And although the fiction is woven into so many truths that it sometimes feels like all of it becomes one and blurs together, it's still not. It's a movie based on fiction. And even if some of those things happen, which a lot of them did, it is depicted and there for context. It's a movie based on fiction. It never tries to be more, in my opinion. It's about how childhood trauma shapes an adult's perception of the world, in part. I guess I'm not interested in this being historically accurate, precisely because it's based in something fictional, using Marilyn, a real person, of course, as a vehicle to explore many subjects, all of which she probably experienced. But the other thing, too, is this. I don't give a fuck if Andrew Dominic meant to do any of the things I'm saying. Intentions mean nothing to me in this situation. What does the text tell us? And this is what I got from the film. Again, remember, I'm not, I know I'm talking like I'm trying to convince you. That's not really my goal here. I just want you to hear my perspective. So in the public eye, at the very least at that time, in the 50s, Monroe lived a majestic life. The film is interested in understanding what led to her killing herself, subverting the public image. And by doing so, Andrew Dominic sees this film as using Marilyn to depict all human beings, particularly those who feel unloved, as he said in an interview. Of course, uh, a lot of the things in the film won't be happening to everyone, thank the gods, okay? Uh, But there is some truth to be found in this. Is it enough truth to warrant an entire three-hour, almost three-hour film to it? Probably not. Um, Does everyone need to watch this because there is some truth found in it? No. But one of my favorite films of last year was The Painted Bird. It is ridiculous to the max, okay? But there is something so grounding to it for me. I think it's the main character, a child, uh, just trying to fucking survive and find his family. And it's shot so incredibly beautifully and effectively that it really just got me somehow, regardless of how ridiculous it was. And in this film, Blonde, we see Norma Jean, basically a kid, trying to find her father trying to find love, support, and someone to listen to her. It's a film about being alone, and the universe seems to strip away everything that makes you feel otherwise. You know, did it have to be depicted this way? Like I said, no, absolutely not. But it is, it was, and it it didn't bother me in the least. I still felt something more than the filmmaker intended. I was able to chew on it and extract meaning from it. In the end, 
Did any of the complaints affect my experience? The aspect ratios, the color profiles, the armistice's differing speech patterns, etc. No, not at all. I actually loved it. I can't speak for Marilyn, but, you know, some have criticized the film for not having her consent to share such horrors from her life, which uh, I might say again, this is fiction, though it does depict some things that we know to be true. So there's a very interesting gray area there, I would argue. Um, And honestly, I would argue that gray area kind of in the favor of this consent argument. But I see see the consent angle. I get it. And I, I believe in consent wholeheartedly, 100%. Um, this makes me think of the documentary called The Titicut Follies, uh, the Frederick Weisman documentary from the 60s. The, the ethical question is, should Frederick Weisman have deceived the heads of the mental institution uh, to get in there, you know, uh, not to film the talent show, The Titicut Follies, like he said he was, but to show the injustices of the treatment of mentally ill individuals? Um, he couldn't have gotten consent. They were unable to consent, and Wiseman never got consent from the families either. But the film highlighted something so important that, for me, the ends justified the means. You know, and same thing goes for that. Uh, I forget the exact story, but uh, there was a, a news station or crew, and one of the guys actually got a job at a grocery store that was. Uh, allegedly they were basically repackaging meat and selling it and it was spoiling and people were getting sick and stuff. So this guy gets a job there without telling them who he is and he starts filming things and creating a story based on it and he finds that they are indeed taking old meat, repackaging it with a new do, um, you know, sell-by date and then uh, putting it out for people to buy. Well, the company, the, the grocery store sued this new station or, or the individual, whichever. I, I, again, I forget the specific details, but you'll get the point. And uh, whenever they went to the the judge, the judge actually granted the grocery store, the grocery chain or whatever, uh, the win because it was like wrong for them to do that. But guess how much they were fined? One dollar. Because the judge said, this is basically the ends justify the means. Like, I have to follow the laws and you guys broke the law, but I'm not going to punish you really for this in any kind of significant way because you did something better with this. You did something good, justifiable, okay? Marilyn is dead. She can't offer consent. Um, But personally, I think that this film says a lot about the movie business and life, um, and, and for a lot of people, this won't be saying enough. And for some people, it might not be saying anything to them, you know, or at least, you know, enough that the naysayers will probably still not get much out of it. But I see a human who struggled with real things in this film. And though I, I don't want to simply expose Marilyn's trauma, for me, the ends justify the means. This movie is like research methods to me. I know I'm starting to get way out there, okay? <laughs> but just hear me out, okay? Uh, this movie's like research methods in that you have like quantitative research method, you have qualitative research method, and then within qualitative, you have things called autoethnographies. Now, uh, you can use each of these methods in a bunch of different ways, you know, to get a bunch of different data on different topics. Just uh, a quantitative study would only show you one aspect of a topic. You know, it would show you probably a much broader, much more generalized, larger um, participant base. You know, uh, for example, you know, if you want to know something about the nation or statewide 
uh, percentages of people doing XYZ, you'd probably do a big quantitative study just to kind of get large mass, you know, how many people own guns or whatever. Like you could do this big study and do all kinds of uh, surveys and whatnot. And then with qualitative, that's usually a bit more intimate. There's usually, you know, what, 8, 10, 20, maybe 30 people. Uh, it's a much smaller participant pool. Um, and you're usually getting more personal with it. You're kind of digging into it. You're getting their stories and interviewing them with certain questions and trying to learn more about the topic. And you're, you're doing a, a kind of a whole different thing than you would with quantitative. And then even within that qualitative, like I said, you know, you have the autoethnography, which is a form of qualitative research that involves self-observation, reflexive investigation uh, in the content of ethnographic fieldwork and writing. So, for example, I read this really great one. I cannot remember the title uh, nor the author, but I remember reading this one in grad school where uh, the, it starts basically like a narrative, like you're reading a novel, and it tells the story of what happened to this author. And then they use research that exists to uh, make sense and give co re like uh, rhetorical context to their experiences. And, um, you know, a lot of people don't consider autoethnographies uh, great research or research at all because it's it's a participant pool of one and it's the person writing it. There's too much subjectivity. There's too much, you know, blah, blah, blah. This is them telling stories, but that's really not what it is. But a lot of people misunderstand it that way. But, you know, if if it was the only kind of research, if it was the only thing in autoethnography, it would not be good research. But when you read it alongside other research, maybe some qualitative or quantitative data to kind of back up certain things, it can arguably be a really powerful and valuable research tool, okay? And I don't want Blonde to be the only movie surrounding Marilyn Monroe, okay? But there are other films and documentaries, et cetera, that highlight various aspect, aspects of Norma Jean's life and Monroe's career. And, and Blonde fits into this like an autoethnography. It's not, but I'm just saying like in the way that I compared it, you know, um, I think it fits more like the autoethnography. We're put inside her head. No one else is a concern unless they cross Norma's mind. And the film works because it's fictional. And also because it's not the only film about this. It's not the only film depicting a version of Marilyn. I still can't get past people saying this is a terrible Marilyn Monroe movie. I just feel like people missed the point. It doesn't mean they would like it anymore if they did know the point. Um, but, you know, uh, it, it would infuriate me significantly less at the very least. To reuse a quote from last episode when I was talking with Joe about Halloween ends and uh, what's the other one? Hellraiser. Um, I, I brought up. Uh, a quote by our friend Evan Dossie from the Midwest Film Journal when he wrote his review about Halloween Ends. And I would actually say this quote about Dominic's film, Blonde. See, Blonde, quote, seems fully self-aware that it is destined for derision for a few years before a small audience declares it an unsung masterpiece. I believe I will be among them. I give this film a four and a half out of five. So keep your half star, you naysayers. If you agree or disagree, please let us know at Medium Cool Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. You can also email us at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. Until, uh, well, actually, I was about to say until next time, but I'll be back for the outro. So I'll be right back.
You know, uh, for, for all this time that I've spent talking about Blonde, uh, again, I just want to clarify, I get that I sound like a big fucking dumb male bastard, okay? <laughs> for loving this movie that everyone is fucking hating on. Holy moly, people hate this movie. Um, it just makes me sad because I felt like I got a lot out of it. And the people that don't get anything out of Blonde, I totally get it. I, I get why they don't like it, okay? I get worked up about it because I hate that a lot of people aren't going to watch it. Because one, it's three hours long, basically. And two, everyone fucking hates it. And it just bums me out. But there are a few of us out there that got something out of it. And we probably, each of us, have different reasons for liking it. And so uh, if you're open to it, or if you're someone who likes to do the, 20, the end of year recaps like we do and stuff, please go watch this. And again, it, it is, for a lot of people, it is very explicit and it is, uh, it's a lot, okay? Um, but uh, if you can if you can stomach it, give it a shot. If you're into horror movies, uh, this will not be as thrilling maybe as a horror movie. It's pretty just sad. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I thought this movie was awesome. Uh, I'm going to keep up with my 2022 films. I'm hoping to cover All Quiet on the Western Front, which is on Netflix, came out last Friday. It's like three hours long also or something like that. Um, and I just didn't get a chance to see it or I might have covered it on this episode. I'm also hoping to watch After Yang, which has been out for quite a while. So I really need to get to that. And also uh, Todd Field's new film, Tar. If I get a chance to go to the theaters, I'll definitely do that. Um, but all that said, I guess it would be a surprise, everyone. Uh, but hopefully you'll listen. And thank you so much for listening to this episode. I love you guys so much. Good night, good luck, and take it easy.